All right, it is good to see everyone here at Berean Bible Fellowship this morning. Today is Palm Sunday, so in favor of Palm Sunday, let's open our Bibles once again to the book of Matthew, chapter number 21. As Brother Lee said, we heard a little bit about this, got a head start in Sunday school. We'll do a little bit more with it in the service here this morning. By the way, um, you know, it is always, I, I wanted just maybe to give a little introduction and make an announcement at the same time, but it's always been important to me, it's always been a practice in my ministry that when we come to uh, important Sundays like this in the year of the church, that uh, we take time away from the regular series that we're pursuing in order to be sure that we recognize the significance. Today is such a day, Palm Sunday. Next Sunday, you have Easter Sunday, and um, regrettably, we won't be able to be with you next Sunday. Uh, we'll be gone that week. We have a, actually leaving uh, Tuesday of this week, have a family gathering down in Florida that we need to get to. And so I'll miss you this Wednesday. I'll miss you next Sunday. I believe the elders have that all lined up. And uh, then uh, I will, uh, God willing, be able to return the, the following Wednesday to be back with you. I must say, when you go to the Easter sunrise service at Rattlesnake Lookout, do look out for the rattlesnakes. <laughs> I hope I won't get back and hear of any problems with that. And I hope the service goes well for you. It is an interesting name, is it not? But probably be better than Devil's Elbow. It might be a close call there between the two. I'm not sure. Anyway, Matthew chapter 21, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll read verse number two. And uh, it starts with the word saying. So this is actually um, the Lord who is speaking. But I'll start with go. Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. Let's pause now for a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into this. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for all that this week, beginning with today and culminating with Easter Sunday next week, represents to us uh, in so far as the great moments of redemption are concerned. And do help us, Father, that what we do today and what we think about through the week and the scriptures that we read will help us to be prepared that this season of the year and its significance um, won't get away from us. It's so easy for that to happen uh, in the busyness of all the different things that are going on. If we don't take every opportunity uh, to remind ourselves, it just gets by and all of a sudden we find ourselves in church and someone says it's Easter and we haven't really paused and given time to prepare our hearts and let the great truths of this week sink in. So we pray today will be a help in that. We pray that you will just bless us and tug at our hearts and cause us to hear things that will be profitable to us. We know that's only possible as the Holy Spirit ministers to us, prepares our hearts, and then our hearts are open. And so I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Please bless now as we look into God's word. Father, if we have anyone here that wouldn't know Jesus as personal Savior, always our prayer is that the word of God will be plain and clear. The gospel will be there. People will be drawn to you. Bless those that may be handling the children or other groups meeting in the building. And bless those who cannot be here today, Father. Continue to burden our hearts to pray for those folks. And we'll rejoice when they are restored to us. Thank you now for these blessings that we know you'll give us because we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, this year I'd like to bring you a message that I've entitled Lessons from a Donkey. Now, how about that for a title? Because if you think about it for a few moments, how often do you really figure you're going to learn something from a donkey? As was pointed out in Sunday school, most of the time when we think about donkeys, we think about people who are named after donkeys who are stubborn 
And so you sort of get that trait coming through. So normally we don't necessarily think about learning lessons from a donkey, but I have five of them here for you this morning. So we'll keep this moving as best we can. But I think this is an interesting study because it's an amazing thing really when you stop and think about it, that God would be able to tie up all the significance of this day in a simple animal like a donkey. But I think we'll discover that as we look at the message here this morning. Palm Sunday, if you think about this, here's another interesting thing about Palm Sunday. Other than, of course, the Lord, that's kind of the obvious thing. Did you ever think about the fact that really the donkey is the centerpiece of what we read about on Palm Sunday? I mean, we know about the palm branches and the multitudes, and we know about the jubilation and the, all of those types of things. But other than the Lord, if you look in the accounts, and you do have them, as was said in Sunday school, you do have them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, you have something in all four Gospels about Palm Sunday. And if you look and read those stories, you're going to find that it all centers around the instructions that Jesus gives concerning a donkey. Now, isn't that sort of amazing? And we'll look into that a little bit because I think there are five things that can stand out and be helpful to us. The first of them is, did you know that this donkey is prophetic? Matthew tells us this. In fact, if you look down at chapter 21, verses 4 and 5, Matthew says this, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, and then here we have the quotation, verse number 5, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, Um, Thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a a colt, the foal of an ass. This is sort of an interesting detail, but of the four accounts, Matthew is the only one who mentions the two animals. The others simply talk about the colt, which is really the one that Jesus rode, and this other one, of course, we presume is the mother. But at any rate, we have that detail here. Now, Matthew, if you think about Matthew's audience, this is why it's, it's good for us to dwell on this for a moment. Matthew points this out, as does John. The others don't really call that much significance to this part of things, but Matthew goes out of his way. He quotes the verses from Zechariah, He says that, or the verse from Zechariah. He says, Jesus did this in order that it might be fulfilled. This makes a lot of sense when you think about who the audience is that Matthew is writing to and what his purpose is, because Matthew is looking to present, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and he's looking to present the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So you will so often find as you look in Matthew's gospel, um, and I, I have alluded to this before, but you'll find this formula lots of times, all this was done or this was spoken, that it might be fulfilled. Not that you don't have that elsewhere, but you have it an amazing number of times in Matthew, and that's the reason for it, because he'll go back to the Old Testament, point to these scriptures, and use them to demonstrate almost as, a, as an apologetic that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And again, writing to a Jewish audience. Well, this would be significant because the, this would be significant because the verse that's under consideration comes from Zechariah. And I'll say something a little bit more about this tonight, not so much in the context of Palm Sunday, but it's a shame, really, that the prophets in the Old Testament are ones that maybe we don't do as much with. We're more familiar with other places in the Bible than we are the prophets. And yet the prophets really are the ones who spoke and preached. If you think about the offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king, And the prophetic office was one uniquely suited and called to teach God's word and preach God's word to the people. So when you think about the prophets of the Old Testament, both the major prophets and the minor prophets, that's what they did. 
And the more you look at those and the more you look at the messages that they brought to the people, the more you see just how much relevance that has to right where we are today because the things that they had to preach against, the things that they had to talk to the people about, the sins that they had to bring society up short for, nothing really changes, right? Human nature doesn't change. Um, The devil's tricks and devices don't change. He just changes the wrapping paper, but what's inside is all the same stuff. So this is important. It comes from the book of Zechariah, which again is not one of those books that we're so much familiar with, but it's one of the minor prophets. It's next to the last. Last you'll have Malachi in the Old Testament, but here's the verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So as was said earlier, this was not done because Jesus was tired that day. Everything that's going on here is choreographed. And I I don't mean that in a bad sense. I mean that in a good sense. It's all planned out. It's all done thoughtfully. It's all done in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And it was important, not just for the sake of fulfilling a scripture, but it was important for the sake of what it represented prophetically. And that was that Jesus was clearly and unequivocally presenting himself to the Jewish nation as their king. There's absolutely no way to get around the fact that in fulfilling this prophecy and in setting the stage, giving his instructions to his disciples, riding then into Jerusalem in this manner, that he was making a clear, unqualified claim to being the Messiah, the Messiah King of the Old Testament, and the one who is prophesied in this very place, Zechariah 9.9. This is kind of interesting. I mentioned that Matthew and John are the only two accounts that, that really call attention to the Zechariah verse. In John chapter 12, I'd like to point this out to you because this is kind of interesting. If you uh, put yourself in the place of the disciples, um, and and we've been trying to do that really with this Sunday morning series, talking about they asked him this, and, and we're seeing so many of those questions that the disciples ask, and it's just like looking in a mirror. It's like you hear yourself talk because they ask questions that we're interested in and curious about. And that's a good thing. That's uh, a lot of help to us. But if you look, drop to John chapter 12, And look at verse number 14. It says, Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written. So here you have John doing this. Matthew and John do this. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh sitting on an ass's colt. And then verse 16 is really what I wanted. John gives us this detail. Matthew does not. He says this, These things understood not his disciples at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting to realize that unwittingly, unknowingly, of course, the Lord knew everything. The Lord was planning all of this intentionally. But the disciples simply acting to fulfill his wishes, even at times when they didn't understand exactly what was going on, followed it to the letter, it played out exactly as the Lord intended for it to play out. But later, do you remember um, in Luke chapter 24, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And John refers to the fact then after Jesus was glorified, so now we would have the full thing really because the Holy Spirit is here and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to bring all things to our remembrance, right? Right? whatsoever he has said to us, and that's what it says. Then they remembered it, 
And their eyes had been opened, and now they were also illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and they saw this scripture in a way that they had never understood it before. And they saw what they had done and knew that Jesus is the Messiah. But I just think it's kind of neat, really, to think about the fact that whether we understand what we're doing, people know what they're doing or not, the scriptures are fulfilled. Nevertheless, there's a very practical point to come out of this. It's one thing just to say that this donkey was prophetic. It's another thing to point to the practical lesson. And that is, I think you could cap, uh, capture that in the word kingship. Because that's the whole point behind this. Zechariah's prophecy was of the messianic king. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Your king. And so the fact that Jesus was clearly presenting himself to the Jewish people as their king, claiming to be their king, now put them and now puts us, really, when you stop and think about it, in the position of making a decision. Did you know that that happens really every time we preach and teach Jesus? Even to the point of just on occasion as we have the opportunity to witness to people. We tell them that Jesus is God's son, that he died on the cross in order that we might have eternal life. We testify to the fact that each of us is a sinner who needs to be saved. Perhaps in our, in our witness to someone, we incorporate our own testimony to talk a little bit about how there was a time when we didn't understand that. And then as God used his word to open our eyes and show us that we were sinners who needed a savior and that Jesus Christ is God's son who died on the cross for us. And then we, we talk about how the Lord worked in our hearts and we received him as our personal savior. But when you've shared that message with someone else, just as you can recall when it was shared with you, it, it forces you into the position of making a decision, does it not? This is what we just heard the choir sing about. What will you do with Jesus? Well, they had a decision to make that day and fickle multitudes found it to be a, a jubilant thing. When Jesus came, they, they took their garments, they strawed them in the way, they waved the palm branches. Oh, this is really great. Uh, finally, we have someone coming who's going to throw the Romans out. But really, through the course of the week as it unfolds from where we are now, they changed their mind about that. Jesus didn't quite measure up to the expectation that they were thinking in terms of their messianic king. And many of those same people who were acclaiming him and finding him so wonderful and so great that day rejected him and, and called for his crucifixion, which also, of course, fulfilled God's word. But we have to realize this. I, I'm reminded of the story of a young man who joined the Navy, and he uh, went to his commanding officer on one particular occasion, and he said, I need a pass this weekend. He said, I have to attend a wedding. So his commanding officer gave him the pass, and he said, now, if you look carefully here, and I said, you'll, you'll need to be back by Sunday night, 7 o'clock. And the young man looked at the commanding officer, and he said, sir, he said, you, you don't understand. He said, I, I'm in the wedding. He said, the commanding officer said to him, said, no, you don't understand. You're in the Navy. And I think a lot of times this just goes right by us. We, you know, we think, well, I'm saved. And it's, a, it's really a false... It's really a false dichotomy, I guess, would be the technical way you would say this, to try to make a division between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not up here preaching lordship salvation this morning, if you even know what that is. Don't worry about that. That's not where I'm headed. I'm simply saying he is the Lord Jesus Christ, and you don't get to choose to accept him to be your Savior because you want fire insurance, but you don't want anything further to do with him in your life. You don't get to do that. 
If you accept him, even though you may not understand the full implications of everything that's involved at the time, you'll find out that he'll begin to demonstrate to you his lordship. He'll begin to work in your heart by his Holy Spirit. And he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he keeps whittling away and working away and bringing to bear the claims of his lordship on our lives until we understand that. And most of us have gotten to the place where at one point or another we acknowledge that and surrendered to that in our lives. It's just sometimes we tend to come down off the altar a little bit and uh, we have to watch that. But let's just remember the, the donkey was prophetic and the message that that communicates to us is Jesus' kingship. Secondly, the donkey was also symbolic. So I think something was said to this effect also. If you'll notice verse 5, um, Matthew makes it a point to call out one particular aspect of this prophecy that's important for this point. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass. Look at the word meek and a colt the foal of an ass. Well, again, compare that now, the quotation as we have it there, to the everything that's said in Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king hath unto King cometh unto thee. So here's a phrase that isn't used. He is just in having salvation. But I point that out because it's really important for the point that I'm going to make here. But then it does say this, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And the reason for this and the reason why this is so important is because any conquering king or general would not come riding on a donkey such as this is described as here. In fact, the verse itself brings out the point that this is kind of a more lowly type of an animal, a humble animal, and Jesus chooses that particular one on this occasion. But we do know, and again, this was pointed out to us in the, the morning lesson, that there is a day when Jesus is coming back again, and the book of the Revelation is rather clear on this, that when he comes the second time to uh, judge the earth and to come back uh, literally and physically to the earth the second time, that he'll be riding on a white what? On a white horse. Well, see, that would have been symbolic of a, of, a, of a conquering king. In fact, if you look in Revelation chapter 19, we won't do this in the interest of time, but verse 11, verse 14, and then it calls attention to the fact, verse 11, Jesus is coming back and he'll be riding on a white horse. And then verse 14 says, the legions of heaven will also be accompanying him on white horses. And then you drop right down below that, and what does it say? His name shall be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The reason for the distinction is the difference in the purpose of his coming the first time and his coming the second time. And beloved, this is something that's really exciting, I think, to point out. You know, it's, it's really errant thinking it's really not correct thinking to come to the conclusion that, oh, wow, uh, Jesus went into Jerusalem and was presenting himself as the king, and oh, they rejected him. So that caught God off guard, and he had to switch to plan B. If you really think about it for a moment, God is never caught off guard, and God doesn't have plan B. You and I need plan B in case plan A goes wrong. God's plan A always goes right. God knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus came to die, but he did legitimately present himself to the nation as her king, and they rejected him. But this didn't catch God off guard. 
The purpose of his coming was meek. It was with reference to redemption. The purpose of his coming was to accomplish our salvation. And he really, it, it doesn't really do us much good to sit here and, and dream in the land of the hypothetical and say, well, what would have happened if they'd done this? Or what if happened if they had said this? God knows all things from the beginning. And he knew exactly what he was coming to do. He, he accomplished both when you think about it. He came and presented himself, making that claim to the nation. It was important to do that. He also came to die and he accomplished that. Aren't you glad? What if you had just gone from no first coming to the second coming and Jesus just came on the white horse? Well, that would be to judge. Wow, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? We need Jesus to come for salvation. We, and he, if you think about this, he kept trying to tell the disciples this. Peter didn't like it. Matthew 16. And Peter took him and rebuked him when he began to describe the fact that he'd be going to Jerusalem and be betrayed into the hands of sinners and be crucified and and. and and, and rise again from the dead. That, that didn't quite suit their concept of what the Messiah was. But, well, they were selective sometimes in, in their reading of the Old Testament. I think sometimes we do that too. You know, we get a certain idea in our heads and then we hit a verse that doesn't seem to quite agree with that. So we kind of gloss over it and figure, oh, well, we'll you know, figure that out later. But you have to be careful. And all of this is clearly in the Old Testament. Both ideas are there. And so... Um, for example, Jesus not only on several occasions um, forewarned and told the disciples and prepared them for this, but he made other statements to them. And I like especially Mark chapter 10, verse 45, when he told them, even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus knew what he was about. In the ending of the story in Luke chapter 19, verse 10 of, of, Zachari- of Zacchaeus, rather, it says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In John's gospel, when we're told about why Jesus is coming into the world, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Paul gets theological about it when he talks about it, which is what we would expect in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. says, this is a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds, of whom I am chief. So nothing is going awry here. Everything is as God intends, but... The beast of burden chosen for this particular occasion is uniquely the donkey because it has that aura of that which is lowly, of that which is humble. You have the incarnation. You have Jesus laying aside all of his kingly glory to come into the world to die for sinners. And it's always paramount. This is, folks, what I'm talking to you about right now, this is the heart of the message of the gospel. This is the heart of of our message for the church. There's an interesting devotional that was written a number of years ago for the Daily Bread by an evangelical uh, by the name of Haddon Robinson. He's a quality writer, so if you come across devotions that he has written, those are going to generally be a cut above. But he had an interesting story in this particular devotion. He told about an American... Well, she was a poet, she was a writer, but she was also a social worker. Her name was Margaret Sangster. And he told this story, he said that on this particular occasion, Margaret Sangster was telling her colleagues, and now 
colleagues in the social context of, of being a social worker, she said that she had seen a young boy in a like an urban ghetto kind of a context, and he was just all messed up. I guess you could say deformed in a way because he had been hit by a car. There wasn't, there were not the resources to get him proper medical attention, and so he was just all, you know, limbs and so forth were, were especially his legs, were just in bad shape, and he hadn't been able to get proper medical attention. So even though this particular boy wasn't a part of her caseload, she had compassion. She decided that she would get the boy to an orthopedist, which she did, got him to an orthopedic doctor who performed surgery on his legs. Two years later, the boy walked into her office without his crutches. His recovery was complete. And it was just such a, an overpowering emotional moment. She said that she recalled that the two embraced. And she thought to herself, and this is what she was telling her colleagues, if I've accomplished nothing else in my life, I've made a real difference in at least this one. And then she kind of paused dramatically and asked her colleagues, she said, do you know where he is now? Well, they all thought this was going to be one of those dream stories. So some people said, oh, a doctor, a teacher, a lawyer, something like that. She said, no. She said, he's in the penitentiary. She is in the penitentiary for one of the most despicable crimes you can think of a human being committing. And then she made this observation. She said, I was instrumental in teaching him how to walk again, but there was no one to teach him where to walk. See, this is what happens, beloved, when you have social work without the gospel. Social work is good as far as it goes. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. It's good as far as it goes. But when, and of course, in the history of the church, we had to deal with such a thing as called the social gospel, where we sort of took the emphasis off the redemption and the message that men and women and boys and girls are sinners who needed to be saved, and we just did the social work. Well, the social work's incomplete without the redemptive work, and that's the point of this devotion that he was giving. Thirdly, did you know it's an interesting detail? So we'll turn over to Mark's gospel. We want to pick this up from Mark's account because Mark, turn to Mark 11. Mark gives us this detail, but and Luke gives us this detail, but the other two do not um, point this out. But this donkey was also unridden. So what we have so far was... The donkey was prophetic, and the lesson is having to do with Jesus' kingship. The donkey is symbolic, and it has to do with salvation, the lesson, the practical lesson. The donkey is also unridden. So look in Mark chapter 11, and look at this. Verse 2, And saith, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. And that's an interesting detail, isn't it? Did you ever stop to think about the fact that that colt never offered the slightest resistance? I would say that's a, a lesson we could learn. You will probably not get too far doing what Jesus did that day with most unbroken animals. Ever try that with a horse? Once in a rare while you might pull that off, but most of the time, no. Most of the time, you start a process out. You take the horse, you start to put the saddle on. They don't like that. Once they, you, you put that up there and they sort of fidget around kind of like, okay, what's this? But you start with that girth. 
And then you turn them loose, and then they figure out, I got something on there I can't get rid of. Oh, they generally, they'll buck until and you go through that process to kind of get that, all right, we're going to get past this. Then you get to the point where you've got to make good on the thing and step up into that stirrup and get on that horse, and you better be ready then. It's usually the way it goes. Some are easier than others. Some go like crazy forever, and some are relatively docile about the process. But this particular colt was what we would say unbroken, unused, never ridden before, didn't offer the slightest resistance because apparently it knew that it was in the presence of the master of the universe. Somehow we don't seem to know that and oftentimes offer resistance, so we aren't doing quite as well. I think we are more stubborn sometimes. But there is a significance to this because in the Old Testament, an unused animal signified one that was special, one that was set apart for a particular purpose. And again, in the interest of time, we're not going to turn to these verses, but if you want to write it down, um, you could write down Numbers chapter 19 and verse 2, which describes the red heifer sacrifice in the Old Testament. And it specifies that that particular heifer would, would be one upon which the yoke had never come. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 3 would be another place you could look. Um, it's talking about the sacrifice that they were bidden to offer when they found a man who had been slain outside the city limits, and then they would have to measure and determine whose city it was closest to to figure out who was going to have to deal with this problem. And a sacrifice would be offered, and it was, again, specified that it would be one upon no, which no yoke had come. Even the Philistines, when they sent the ark back, seemed to recognize something about this idea because do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 7, they, they used a new cart. In other words, one that hadn't been used for any other purpose. They used a new cart. And then they also used, it says in the verse, milk kine that had never had the yoke upon them. But Spurgeon has a sermon on those milk kind. You can read his text, which says, they went their way lowing as they went. They also had no problem, even though no yoke had been put upon them before. And of course, the lesson that this points to is one of sanctification, or we could say consecration. I think I like the word consecration maybe a bit better. Uh, but something that's set apart for a special use and it's important for us to be reminded that that's exactly what God has done for us. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And we do need to remember that we belong to him, that God didn't just save us and take us out of the world, but God saved us and left us in the world because he's given to us a task. He's given to us those things that he wants us to accomplish. You know, as a Presbyterian evangelist from the 19th century, you may have heard this name before. His name is J. Wilbur Chapman. And on one particular occasion, Chapman had the opportunity to ask William Booth. Everybody knows William Booth, right? The Salvation Army. And I thought it would be interesting to hear who asked the question, what the question was, and who got asked the question and what they said. So Chapman asked William Booth on one occasion, what was the secret of his success and he got just a bit of a tear in his eye and he said I will tell you the secret he said God has had all of me all there was of me 
He said, there have been men with greater brains than I have, men with greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus could do with them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth there was. So he realized that God had set him apart, consecrated him for a special purpose. Do you know Fanny Crosby's song, I Am Thine, O Lord? That's a great song. She talks about this in the second stanza. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. So it was unridden and we have the lesson of consecration. Fourthly, it was borrowed. Did you know that? Mark tells us that. All of them really in so many words tell us this. They don't use the word borrowed, but you can't help but get this out of the story. If any man, he says, say unto you, verse 3, I'm reading from Mark where we are. Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. Do you ever think about how this exactly worked out? Since we know the Lord doesn't leave things to chance... But you could think of maybe a couple of scenarios. How did this work out? Did Jesus know those people and just know them well enough to know that when he sent those two disciples and they said, the Lord hath need of him, they would just let the beast go? Or did he talk to them in advance? I don't know that we can prove it one way or another, but I tend to rather favor the idea that Jesus prearranged with those people. The disciples didn't know anything about this. That's what's so interesting about it. Jesus apparently has made arrangements with these people just as the disciples would make arrangements for the, the place to have the upper room and has told them that he's going to send two of his disciples and they'll understand when those two disciples come that they're going to say those particular words, the Lord hath need of him. That's what he told them to say. It's almost like code words. Almost like when you hear this, this is the request for me. Let the donkey go. It's kind of intriguing, isn't it, when you think about that? But again, as I say, and I use the word positively, this is all choreographed. It's all done specifically to the letter to fulfill exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. So the point, though, that I want to drive towards is, is this is kind of interesting, particularly when you put it with another detail, and that is, that, you know, Jesus didn't have very much when he got to the end. What did Jesus have when he got to the end? Anybody know the answer to that? When they crucified him, what did he have when he got to the end? The clothes on his back. That's all he had. And he talked about this. Um, My point is that Jesus lived a simple life unfettered, undistracted life of devotion. And in that, there's a very powerful example to us. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. The day he was preaching to a group of people and a man in that audience, you often wonder where people are when you're preaching to them because some of them are light years away. You can look at their faces and tell. And this guy was exactly like that. He's sitting in the audience and he's not thinking about anything that Jesus is talking about. You'll see this in Luke chapter 12 where you have the parable of the rich fool. All of a sudden this guy, hello, 
butts into Jesus' sermon and says, Lord, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Well, when you read the next verse, and this is where I say, I feel sorry for people who don't get a few smiles and see some humor in the Bible because you can tell this irritated the Lord a little bit. And uh, being a preacher, I can kind of understand that. But uh, the Lord said, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? I'm up here preaching and you're, you're off out here in Never Never Land, but what you're consumed with and what you're worried about is money. And so then he went on to say this, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. The things. Now, I'm not asking you to go out here this morning and sell your car, because Jesus had no car. I mean, he didn't have a horse either. He didn't have a donkey either. He had to borrow one. Did you know he didn't have a grave? I won't ask you to put your hands up this morning if you have your cemetery lots picked out and bought. But it's not the worst thing in the world to think about that because that day's coming if Jesus tarries. Probably a little unusual if you're a teenager and do that. But once you sort of get out in life a little bit, it's not too soon to start thinking about some of those things because, and this is for free, I'm just telling you this for free, did you know if you don't have a will, that's all right, the state has one for you. So unless you want them to do with your stuff what they say, you better figure what you say. The Lord didn't have a grave either. He had to borrow one from Joseph of Arimathea. And it's an interesting thing. That too, that tomb was unused. Never been used before. It was graced by Jesus, but he didn't need it for long. Joseph got it back. What's all this really point out to us? As I say, it's, it's, it's and Jesus warned us on so many different occasions about Lay not up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For your, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's the things. See, we get caught up with the things. And the first thing you know, these things begin to, to choke the word that it becometh unfruitful. Wasn't that exactly how it was in the third instance in the parable of the soils that some seed fell among thorns well i got news for you if you i don't care what you've got anything good flowers tomatoes watermelons well i don't care what you've got throw it in there with the thorns and who's going to win it just and and the competition is there i mean it's game on the minute you do that and the weeds always win Did you ever notice that the monofloral rose always wins. And that seems to be the way it comes off in this life, too. The things seem to win if we're not really careful. We become so distracted by those things, just like that man was that day when he was preaching and Jesus told a story about it. He told about the rich fool. And so our message or our thought here is one of devotion that it, it, I'm not asking you this morning. I'm not going to do it because I don't think this is what this is all about. I'm not going to sell my car. I have to get from different places uh, to the other. I'm not going to sell my house. I, I do need somewhere to sleep at night, and it's not Motel 6. Um, but I do know that our lives can become awfully cluttered, and those things have a way of distracting us. Lastly, I, I want to end with this very briefly, that, that this donkey was privileged sounds strange to put it that way, but 
all of the accounts call attention except for John. John's the only one who doesn't give this, but Matthew 21.3, Mark 11.3, which you probably have right in front of you, and Luke 19.34, all quote those words, the Lord hath need of him or them. Matthew has to say them because Matthew mentions mama, mama donkey. Would you ever think that the Lord of glory would have need of anything? If he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, every beast of the forest, the psalm says, every beast of the forest is mine, not the game commissions. Every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. But why would the Lord of glory need to say that? But he does that with us too, doesn't he? I mean, he has plenty of angels that he could ask to do his bidding. The point that I want to leave with you is, is, beloved, we have so many folks that I think they just um, don't realize the privilege that service is, and so they moan and complain. And I'll grant you that trials do come along the way, but I've always tried to stress for myself and for other people that I've had the opportunity to be involved with over my years of Christian service. Service is a privilege. If you don't believe that, ask someone who doesn't either age or health or anything of that nature. And I have to respect people who buy into and believe in the fact that service is such a privilege that they look for opportunities even when they can't do what they did before to find ways to serve you'll find your former pastor to be such a person. You'll find Pastor Palmer talking about, he has a ministry of, once in a while he'll call me. Well, it's, it's more than once in a while, but he'll call me on the phone and he'll say, I was just sitting here in my chair thinking, and I said, I know who I'll call today. I'll call Brother Tom. And we'll talk on the phone for a while. And, and he's faithful in his prayers. I have to tell you something that uh, I've been thinking about recently, and every so often he reminds me about this, but, well, it's been 30 years ago, right at 30 years ago. The first Sunday that I was in Huntington as the pastor of Calvary Independent Baptist Church, I went early that morning, which is pretty much what I always did, and I think I might have been the only one there if I wasn't there wasn't there weren't many other people, and I was in the office there. It was in the old days when we had that old phone system, I think it was old when Pastor Palmer left. But it would ring in there. And so I went in there for a few quiet moments, you know, before people started to arrive before Sunday school just to get my thoughts collected and be sure I had everything lined up. And the phone rang. And I thought, oh, I don't deal with the phone now. And I, so I punched the button, picked it up. Hello, this is Jack Palmer. And he just told me, he said, this is your first Sunday at Calvary. He said, I want to pray with you. Well, I've always remembered that. And every so often we talk about that together. That's a great thing, isn't it? It's a great thing to, to believe that service is a privilege and to revel in the opportunities that God has given us. Ask people like that. A survey was done with 50 people one time, all of them over 95. The question that was asked was, is if you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? probably get a lot of answers to those, but they distilled them all down and said they came up with three things that were said more than anything else. 
The third one's the one I'm interested in, but the first one, since you probably want to know, was they said reflect more. Secondly, they said risk more. But the third one is the one that's really interesting. Do more things that would live on after I am dead. Service is a privilege, and we have the opportunity to do things that count and last for eternity. So what's the significance of Palm Sunday? Well, God seems to be able to wrap a lot of it up in just a simple animal. Here they are again. The donkey is prophetic, which gives us the lesson of kingship. It's symbolic, which gives us the message of salvation. It's unridden, which gives us the message of consecration. It's borrowed, which speaks to us of devotion. And it's privilege, which speaks to us of service. O oh God in heaven, we thank you today for the many blessings you've given to us and marvel at how you are able to take simple things. This, I think, as we ponder your preaching was what made it so powerful and so effective. Simple things that were part of people's everyday lives that you were able to take and turn into ready illustrations. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a candle, under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, what is it good for? Except to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. Simple things around us all the time. A simple beast of burden who was given a great privilege and brings to us the remembrance of so many important truths. Thank you, Father, that we look back now to your first coming. This week, we think about all those things that are attendant and the climax of your life on this earth and your ministry on this earth. And thank you for the privilege of living in the church age where we look back and can see those things with a far greater clarity than people of old were able to understand and can look forward to your second coming and know that you're coming again and to know that because we're saved, not because we're smart, not because we're better, but because you worked in our hearts to know that we're a part of that, we'll be able to rule and reign with you on the earth for a thousand years. Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you as personal Savior, or if there are Christians here today that are sidewise with even the simple lessons that this donkey could bring us, help us to realize, Lord, how important it is to love and serve you and to honor you in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our songbooks.